Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 82. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest is A.E. Stallings. We have her on the line. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry, so please do click the like button and share, and make sure you're subscribed, um, smash the bell or whatever they say, and uh, click something to let the computers know that you like poetry, because if you if they know you like poetry, they'll think more people like poetry, then they'll show it to more people, and we'll get poetry in more places, which is the whole goal of everything we do here. Um, so hello to everybody out there. Um, now, today's guest, it's an interesting, um, the first time we're doing um, a, a podcast episode this way, um, the guest today is A.E. Stallings, and um, we interviewed A.E. Stallings in round number 70, the winter issue that just came out, and I'm going to assume that most of the people listening to this podcast have um, read the interview already, so instead of um, instead of covering the same kind of ground about, you know, um, A.E. Stallings' background and... Um, and Lucretius and the things that we talked about there, we're going to be sort of using this as a follow-up um, where you especially can ask any questions that you want. I'll pass them along. And it's a poetry reading too, like always. So we'll read maybe eight or nine poems and have a lot of fun that way. Now, A.E. Stallings is an American poet who studied classics at the University of Georgia and Oxford University. She's published four collections of poetry, Archaic Smile, Hapex, Olives, and Like, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She also translated Lucretius's The Nature of Things, which I just love, among many other things. Um, she lives in Athens, Georgia now, or Athens, Greece. She's from Athens, Georgia. Lives in Athens, Greece with her husband, the journalist John Seropoulos, and their two Argonauts, Jason and Atalanta. And uh, here she is, A.E. Stallings. Hello, Alicia. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. Hi, Tim. Yeah, great to see you again. Um, and it's evening there in uh yes. <laughs> in Athens even though the light looks beautiful as uh, sunny and <laughs> but um, do you want to start us out with a poem sure um I'll read one of the poems from the from the rattle issue yeah sure um this poem is entitled dyktic um which is a word that has to do with showing so it's about sort of indicating and showing things and it takes place at the Piraeus archaeological museum dear a even before the virus, these were nearly empty galleries, but now we have these cluttered shelves and halls of statues to ourselves. Stickers on the floor in Greek tell us, watch your apostasies, mind your distance, so to speak. But since the guards outnumber us, there is no nearness we need fear, no tourists herded from a bus. Here on the coast, the coast is clear. We follow arrows on the floor and shoulder open the glass door. First, there's the cargo from a storm-sunk ship destined for Italy to decorate some temple there or private villa. Here's a frieze of graceful dying Amazons as if but dancing into death, short skirts a flutter at their knees. And here's colossal Hadrian's armed torso, huge head, now we see Balbinus with his marble stare, emperor for a three-month term, lathed by wave and drilled by worm. Up a flight of steps we pass. One way, floor stickers say, be smart. 
Here an Apollo, sea-green, bronze, stands archaically and stiff, near goddesses with eyes of glass and an emasculated herm. In the next gallery, a mass of grave goods from life's everyday, needles, mirrors, combs, as if dropped into stillness after play, small children's toys, shard of a pot on which a practiced alphabet breaks off before Omega moans, and here a game of knuckle bones. Here is the poet's grave, the harp's triangulation, flats and sharps, its brittle dark hypotenuse. Here are the measurements of man, the cubit, foot, the palm, the span, carb standards in the marketplace to keep those honest who would cheat. Inscription on the price of meat of awful tripe, brain, liver, lung, all grave markers this room. We start with these two hoplites, brothers, young, one looks just past us, one afar. They're eager for adventure, war with cloak and sandals, shield and sword. My son, now close to their age, bored, sinks on a bench, tired of all this. The world's contagious, after all. His eyes roll at the actor, task long done, who gazes on his mask of tragedy from Salamis as we adjust our own, our breath hot on our faces. And I turn, a rusted sword bent round an urn, to take one la last glance at the wall and see a girl, her dress hung loose, regarding her rigid, lifeless doll and mourned by her pet goose. That was wonderful. That was Daedic um, from uh, Rattle Number 70. And um, both of the poems that we published... Um, in this issue of Rattle are new. They're not, of course, in the book, which is several years old. Um, what what are you sort of working on now? Is there um, is there a, a collection coming together? I'm just wondering, first of all. Uh, in theory, I've got a selected coming out um, that was supposed to come out this year, but with, you know, COVID has been pushed to 22. You know, I, of course, poems accrue. I don't really necessarily work on a collection, but poems accrue maybe very slowly. Um, so that that was actually, I think, the first time I've read that poem aloud, which is always <laughs> kind of a strange experience. You suddenly think, what am I doing here? Um, you know, but uh, little by little, I, I tend to not um, write with themes in mind. But of course, one's life unfolds and there are themes there, you realize afterwards. But uh, so both of the poems, I guess, in this rattle issue are lockdown poems. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you mentioned uh, in the interview, too, um, you talked about how much um, writing um, or, or giving readings back um, uh, back in Athens, Athens, uh, Georgia. How influential that was for you as a writer. Um, how much um, you know, like having that audience feedback, that sort of immediate experience um, of um, you know reading a poem and having having little insights and little jokes with your friends and things, and then having the response from the audience. Um, do, do you still, I, I wanted to ask, and, and sort of the, that conversation took a different turn, but do you still get that feeling um, from readings? Do you like doing readings? And how does it feel to, to do a reading like over this new medium now where we have to sort of be distanced? Uh, I, it is harder. I mean, I can't read the audience. I don't see the audience. I mean, sometimes, you know, if there are, you know, remarks going up the screen, you kind of know if you've hit some 
something out of the park or someone has a question and doesn't, you know, understand a stanza. But I think, you know, in a room together when you have that breath, I mean, it used to be kind of a joke about poetry readings, right? That, that sort of intake of breath at the end of moving poems and the whole audience go like, <gasps> but, you know, <laughs> that is very, it is kind of what we strive for. Um, or to, you know, if a joke gets a laugh or um, you, you even know if you're up there reading a poem, you know, if the thing is two stanzas too long, you can just feel it go slack and attentions wander. So um, for me, that's still very important. I mean, I, my, my poor husband is my first reader, so I still experiment on him. Um, and even reading something aloud, you know, in this kind of way is helpful because I, I feel what it's like you know, to perform it, but I, it's hard to say that anything really compares with, um, that live audience feeling. Mm -hmm. And and what's the, before the, the pandemic, what's the, um, the, the sort of literary scene in English in, in Greece? Is, do you have readings there or do you only get to do readings when you travel? There's, um, you know, there's a fairly active scene of, of readings of various kinds. Um, the Athens center, um, would do a lot of events, um, you know, and there's, there's, I think, a good relationship with, um, expat and Greek poets, um, so, for instance, there's a, a festival, an international festival here every September, um, and, you know, it's kind of nice to have Greek poets and international poets, and it's, it's kind of fun for me, because I'm sort of in between, I'm, I'm both a local and a foreign poet, um, but there's, uh, you know, it, there's a good scene. I mean, it's it's been a weird year. In fact, that festival, uh, there was a new lockdown the day before it started, and um, so there were a few meetings, kind of outdoors, but it it wasn't, you know, what it was intended to be, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, one of the things that we we could talk about more maybe is just your writing process. Um, how do you how do you go about composing a poem? You mentioned that um, um, that a lot of the the sort of surprise and the and the pleasure now comes through the revision process. So how I was wondering how close to the final product are the poems when you sort of write a first draft, and how many revisions do they go through? Do you do you work and work at lines, um, or do they come out mostly? mostly whole and then you 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 know fix lines that aren't working quite right in little sections or, or you find yourself rewriting whole poems how does your revision process work well as i mostly work in received forms i mean not entirely but mostly in received forms I mean, it really very it depends on the poem like dyktic was really written very quickly and with very little revision at all i mean maybe some adjectives were adjusted or something but you know, the stanzas fell out pretty quickly and, um, you know, so anything would be really, you know, micro tweaks. Is that a word? I don't know. Um, you know, but then there are other poems that you work and work at um, that you just change their form completely. Um, you know, if I am working in a received form, you know, if I'm writing a sonnet or whatever, and I think that it's largely working, but it needs revision, then that's going to be very surgical. It's going to be, you know what can I do in that adjective that's really going to, you know, open this poem up. Um, but that's the thing. If there were sort of a recipe and a way to do it, 
it would not be poetry, I guess. <laughs> so every poem is kind of its own individual event in that way. And maybe as you get older, that's kind of what you learn is that you have to relearn it, you know, every time. So I don't know that there's, um, I think the second poem in the, the rattle issue took a lot more revision and took longer. Like, you know, I had half of it and didn't know how to end it. Um, so that, but it's also kind of a more free form poem. So it was kind of a different process. And Dyktik is a, is an epistle. It's a letter to a friend. Um, and in fact, I can, you know, it's not a mystery. Um, it's a Angie Malenko and I write poems sometimes. So often if I, it's dear A, it's, it's really Angie. But so I think that, that feeling of writing a letter to someone, you know, you want it to feel and maybe be a bit spontaneous and not overworked and overthought out. So maybe that gives you more permission to kind of just rattle it off as it were. Oh, that's, that's an interesting Interesting concept. Yeah, it does fit the form better. Um, since you mentioned the other poem, do you want to read the other poem now? Sure. From Rattle, I mean? Okay. This is and Lockdown course, Puzzle. Yeah. And of course, I, I took out the bookmark when I read the other one. Hmm. You don't know what page it's, it's on. It's 37 of Rattle, if that's what you're that, looking at. Yes. That's okay. um, you know, and so this is, again, a, a, a quarantine puzzle, a poem, and I think I can say that... Uh, we had a very hard lockdown at the beginning in Greece and then it opened up a bit because we flattened the curve and you could go briefly to shops. And I was like, I, I want to get a puzzle. And I got this thousand piece crazy puzzle that ended up being the hardest. I, it is still not done. The puzzle is not complete, but I got a poem out of it, as they say. So lockdown puzzle, Hakusai's great wave off Kanagawa. Even the border escapes me. There are pieces of the sky I cannot seem to put my finger on. The wave about to dash, the boat to pieces, is dashed to pieces. The pieces are shaped like fractals of flying sea foam. The outside of the box offers what might be pieced together. The wave lifts white and Prussian blue, while the sky lies flat and beige as the raw cardboard inside the box. The wave stands taller than a snow-topped mountain with three boats slung low in the troughs, rows of fat white dots like white dots of foam are the round tops of the heads of fishermen who are looking not overhead at the crest about to crash but down into the lurch of the sea where they are likely to be drowned amidst a hissing mess of foam and wreckage. The puzzle lies spilled, shipwrecked on the table, all flotsam and jetsam, a piece of boat here, a mountaintop there, sky and wave all jumbled, the edges aligned with the horizon of the tabletop's steep drop. It comes over me in waves, this failure to put together the big picture. I had thought the working of it would give me a feeling of what? Peace? a fitting way to pass the time, a sense of pleasure in the making sense of things. The table is now no use as a surface. For months now, it is all puzzle. The white shapes of water shaped like random spindrift spinning across the beige ground of the table or the cardboard colored sky 
fragments of yellow boats and blotches that could be sea foam, snowflakes, or bowed heads. Maybe nothing finally locks the surface into an illusion of its smoothness. Even if I rhyme each shape with its absence, even if I finish this wave, its monstrous gesture, after, would not my giant hand be another crumbling the world about to crumble, sweeping the confusion back into its box? Yeah, that was Lockdown Puzzle. Um, Hakusai's Great Wave of Kanagawa from Rattle Number 70. And a great example, both of those poems are, of um, just what I've always loved about your work is that it feels so, just so solid and, and like long-lasting or something, like the, the opposite of frivolous. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain it otherwise, but is, is that poem, that, that second poem, Lockdown, is that in any kind of form? Or, or is it a sort of a free verse where the, it's metrical? What's going on with that poem? Um, I think the poem starts to feel a bit like a sestina. It isn't a sestina, but um, it's about the same length as a sestina. It's in six-line stanzas. There are lots of repeated words that just keep coming back in different ways. So, you know, it's like it could be translated into a sestina, but I decided not to push it all the way. It, I think because it's this puzzle that's not done, I, maybe it would have felt too put together oh, yeah. if I had gone all that way. So I, I kind of left, you know, some rough edges in that. So it's, you know, maybe there are a lot of iambic lines, um, you know, and there's kind of a shape to the stanzas, but it's not fully pushed into all the way into a form. Yeah, it's interesting because it has that, I noticed as you were reading, it has that, that same feel of sort of I don't know. I don't know how to really describe it. I think I think I mentioned it feels like a perfectly chiseled marble sculpture is how your your poems always strike me. Like they're just this they're so um, they're not they're they're just um, I don't know that they feel like uh, I, I, I'll i be reading them in a 100 years or a thousand years or something every time I read one of them. And I wonder if, you know, a lot of times you would think it's the formal the formal elements that sort of do that. Um, so when a poem is, is a lot looser and it still has that feeling, it's interesting um, to think of the comparison or, or why, like, how is it working that way, do you think? Um, well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. Um, I, I think this is one of these that's, that's a borderline formal poem. It, it keeps kind of going towards form, but, uh, you know, it doesn't fully go there. In fact, I think I dialed it back. I think it was a bit more rhymed and more stanzaic, and um, I sort of deliberately tweaked it back into a rougher state. There's a couple of things, you know, where the tabletop steep drop, and then that is a rhyme, and it's across this gap of the stanza, you know, where I kind of wanted that feeling of vertiginous dropping, um, you know, but uh, it didn't want to just be complete. I, I thought it didn't really want to go all the way into rhyme. So there are some rhymes, you know, embedded or in there, um, you know, locks and box in the end, I guess, does lock the poem up. Um, but I also wanted to have this free verse feeling. It's not maybe really free verse, maybe it's verse libre, um, but uh, kind of in between state. Mm hmm. Which is, it's not necessarily easy to do, but... Um, yeah, yeah, well, it fits perfect for the, the puzzle. And I think, didn't you, I think I saw either on Twitter or Instagram or something, you posted a picture of the puzzle, <laughs> and it was just still incomplete. <laughs> so it's if anybody, still incomplete. It yeah. may never. 
for be done. I yeah. think it's sort of joke with the family. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a day if I get three pieces in the puzzle because it's it's like all the same colors. I know it looks like the hardest puzzle I've ever seen in my life, and maybe it'd be a bad sign if you managed to finish it. <laughs> I, I what I'm worried about is I'm going to get to the end, and you know there'll be missing pieces, but you know we'll, we'll see. We'll see what it is. Uh, to, to stick with the the topic of just formal poetry in general, um, we have a question from T. R. Paulson, who's sort of a, one of our famous um, formal you know poetry fans here, and, and we published T. R. a bunch of times, and uh, and she says. Um, all the time in uh, workshops, um, her advice, which is always good advice, it seems, when we're doing the critique of the week on Friday, is to try this in form. And she suggests a certain form where it fits, and it really helps. But, um, but, but TR says, I worship A.E. Stallings, seriously. Um, I have something I've been dying to ask her. Any advice uh -oh. for an emerging formalist who wants to become better at formal poetry, but is often told in workshop settings that lots of writers start out in form, but as they mature, they realize that most poems are stronger in free verse. The implication being that formal poetry is kind of like training wheels on a bicycle. This question from an emerging poet who has had some publishing success, though not as much as she'd like. And I, you know, I, um, my um, undergraduate experience when I was a, a science major, but taking elective poetry, I got the, heard the same things over and over again that, um, like, don't like some professors had a rule like no rhymes in this classroom. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't know. So what would your advice be to an emerging formalist poet? Well, I think this idea that there are a lot of poet, poets that start out in, in rhyme and then become freer, I think that's largely a generational thing. Um, you look at poets like Adrian Rich. Um, there, there are poets from a certain time period that definitely had the formal training and, you know, then went to a freer. I don't think that holds anymore <laughs> you know um i think that there's enough free verse out there that that is no longer you know some kind of radical prog progressive choice you know um that's really now the default you know whereas some of these poets were coming from a point where formal poetry was the default now free verse is i would say more or less the default at least in american poetry um, and, and a lot of international poetry, in fact, maybe not so much in the UK, um, where I think there was never this total break. Um, and I think, you know, there are, I can see in a workshop where you might want to nudge people away from rhyme. I think I'm a great believer in rhyme as a method of composition. Um, it is, you know, I don't want it necessarily hidden or not being heard. I want it there doing something. And, um, you know, I think reading poets who are successful at this and kind of trying to take apart that watch and see how it ticks is one way. Memorizing, I think, is probably the best way really to lay down in, in your subconscious reptile brain, which is where form lives, um, how this works and what the rules or not are. And I just really find poems that are formal, that you like what they're doing and memorize them. You know, as you're walking along, you know, you, or jogging or whatever, you can have that playing in the background. And I think it will teach you a lot. I think um, there's an idea. It comes out in a lot of reviews of my work, actually. The one thing that tends to get the most negative lightning bolts is rhyme. And I think it's because rhyme is very audible and it's very visible. 
And because a lot of reviewers don't really understand how it works, they think maybe that I've written this poem and then I've rhymed it. But in fact, I couldn't have gotten to that poem without the rhyme. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't exist otherwise. It's not like I've versified an argument or a thought. I mean, you could do that, but that I think is not really what is exciting about rhyme, which is really about giving up control, um, you know, allowing your subconscious some play, giving yourself permission to say things maybe you wouldn't if it didn't rhyme. You know, rhyme is the reason in that case. So, and you know, in terms of like publication, if you're writing in free verse, I mean, not free verse, blank verse, if you're writing in like unrhymed meter, editors mostly, I think, don't even notice. (laughs) You know, you can get away with a lot. Um, But I, I've never really run into problems publishing, even my rhymiest stuff. Um, So I think it's just about doing it well, learning to, to do it well and finding good models. Yeah, I I think that um, so much of poetry now, the the poetry world exists as um, pedagogy, kind of. It's like what what goes into teaching ends up informing a lot of the way we're writing. And it always seems to me like because, um, you know, like a lot of poets come in. The other example I use is E.E. Cummings, but but poets will read E.E. Cummings and the way the words are scattered around the page. And then a new, you know, poet at a workshop who hasn't been writing much will imitate that. And it's just this imitation that stands out. And it's not a kind of thing that's easy to do well or meaningfully. Um, and, and so so I think um, Cummings in, the, in the, that way, those kind of poems have a negative um, reaction from professors. But then, but then rhyme is done so poorly at first, too, um, that you sort of, um, I, I think it seems to me like teachers don't like to hear the, the bad stuff. <laughs> and so they tell people not to do it. And then they end up not, you know, not going on to do it later. I would think that those would be mostly professors who do not rhyme themselves and maybe don't really understand how it works or, you know, are perhaps a little bit leery of it. I mean, there there are even some very basic rules with rhyming that will help you immediately for all the rhymesters out there. Rhyme across parts of speech. Like if you have a poem and it's rhyming cat, hat, and mat, the problem isn't that, you know, you're writing a Dr. Seuss poem. The problem is your syntax. You're, you keep landing on a on a noun in the same place in the line. So if you think about rhyming across parts of speech, rhyme monosyllabic words with polysyllabic words, rhyme general concepts with specifics. I mean, that you're trying to put energy into the system because if you've got rhymes that are too equal, it's just going to stop everything in its tracks. It's just going to be, the poem will become constipated. So you want... You want energy and movement. And so you need inequality, imbalance to keep the energy in the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Great advice. Are, are there any other rules you can think of? That, that was so good. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's a really, you know, that's a very easy. I can tell, like looking at student work or, or professional work, um, if a, a poem is a rhymed poem is looking well simply by looking at the rhymes. Because if they've got this this kind of thing going on where they're rhyming across parts of speech, et cetera, um, then I know that the syntax is going to be complicated and interesting and that what the poem is saying is interesting. So I really think that's that's maybe the main thing, especially in English. I mean, there are specific rules, you know, I would observe about off rhyme and so on that become very arcane. But, um, you know, in a, in a literary poem, you can get away with slant rhyme as long as the consonants kind of line, line up. But people used to listening to a lot of pop music um, and lyrics think that assonance is enough to pin something down, which it can be in performance, but I think on the page, um, 
when you're doing slant rhyme, it's much more interesting to have um, things that have different vowels, but different, but same final consonant sounds. And then you get a kind of um, almost a minor key music. Mm -hmm. um, Christine Bissonnette um, says, you said uh, form lives in your subconscious reptilian brain. Could you speak a little more about that? Which it, this is my favorite, one of my favorite topics too. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about about what what's going on in your brain actually as you're writing um and and, and where how form lives like in a deeper layer of it well i mean I, I i'm sure you could even do scientific experiments to demonstrate this i think there has been some of when people listen to rhythmic speech um you're pro you process it differently i mean um, a baby that does not understand syntax or vocabulary will react um, you know, in a, in a pleasurable way to a nursery rhyme, that there is a rhythm and a music. I think we tend to get taught maybe in school that poetry, and that's because poetry is taught so badly across the board um, in elementary, middle school, high school, you know, that it's about decoding some sort of sophisticated code. Um, poetry is, is much more primitive than prose. Um, prose poetry has been around, you know, since before writing, since before the alphabet prose, you know, is, it takes place hundreds of years after the alphabet comes into being. Um, because you can't, we speak in something more like poetry. I mean, I think drama shows that we speak in lines. Um, but I think it's important to realize, and I, with scansion, when people are taught scansion, we're taught all these fancy Greek words that again, make it seem difficult and sophisticated when, you know, I could talk about, um, catalectic um, trochaic tetrameter, and that sounds really difficult. But anybody, I guarantee you, can fill in words to, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. Um, you know, anyone can put words to that. And they're doing catalytic, catalectic trochaic tetrameter. Um, but I think when we teach with these terms, and I think a lot of professors even don't understand it as well as they would like are a little afraid of it um, and they transfer that anxiety <laughs> um, but so like I, I can teach anybody anybody to scan unless they've done a course on it in graduate school I can go <laughs> into a second grade class and have them like you know in a day so I think it's just something we unlearn I think it's something that's there and it existed as long as language has existed, there has been rhythmic meaning and language. Yeah, I mean, that's not to, um, you know, rag on the, the teaching profession I know. <laughs> so that much. Sure. But but I do feel like it's, um, you know, especially you mentioned um, poems as something to be decoded. And as, as sort of like little cryptic puzzle boxes that you're supposed to pry apart and, and figure out the meaning. And the way that that gives the professor, the teacher, some kind of sort of higher elevation because they're the ones who can decode it, like the priests listening to God or something. Um, I think so much comes down to this, where poetry is such... Um, we were talking to Dana Joy about this a few episodes back, but how poetry is such a fundamental aspect of human just consciousness and the way we think and operate as creatures in this world. And um, and, and, and the the... The way it's taught sort of just hides that sort of in every aspect. I mean, if you look through the history, if you take literature classes or poetry classes, you know, most of the thing, the way you learn is through which movements 
um, you know, developed new ideas, you know, or, you know, the, the postmodernists and stuff like this, and, and who had the manifestos and the groups of people that, that put together their ideas, where poetry is just such a, a more bodily human thing than that, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, if I were talking, it, I think if you approach it through, through pleasure and through wonder, and the great thing about wonder is wonder doesn't have to understand, you know, I, I can, and I think giving yourself permission to enjoy things that you don't fully understand, which we do with music all the time, you know, I mean, you know, in being in university in Athens, Georgia, late 80s, early 90s, you know, sitting and listening to tapes of R.E.M. and trying, you know, people trying to figure out what the lyrics are. I mean, that you didn't have to understand it. You know, that was part of the pleasure even was was maybe not quite understanding it. I mean, I'm sure my son listens to music that I would have to have a lot of explanations to understand um, you know, but it's not being taught to him. It's not like he's not being told to, to do this. And yet he's probably memorizing a lot of it. So I really think probably in terms of if you want to be a poet, as opposed to, uh, you know, someone who studies literature, that memorization and really embracing the poetry that you like, whether it's fashionable or not. And, you know, just looking things up in the dictionary, if you don't understand them or on Google, you know, it's all there now. Um, and imitation, you know, I think imitation is probably really the best teacher because you're, you're trying to reproduce some effect and, you know, that's maybe how you learn. Um, so there's a quick question, but Annie Benani is just wondering, I mean, I was too, how many poems you have memorized? Um, I, I, at this point I have lost some, you know, over the years, uh, I probably, my, I probably knew the most lines at around um, 35 or something. Um, you know, and I do memorize new poems as I go along. Um, but some, you know, if you don't keep up with them, they kind of fall out the back of the, but you know, I could get them back up again. I guess my, the sort of longest poems that I know, um, by heart are to his coy mistress and Terrence, this is stupid stuff. I've probably got the most poems I probably have are by Houseman. And then maybe second is Frost. And then I have a lot of one-offs by, mm -hmm. by various people. Um, and it's, I love memorizing poems because it's instead of listening to music, if I'm jogging or walking, I play the poems through. And I love having that ability in your brain that, you know, you don't, you don't have to have a connection. <laughs> it's, yeah. You can just play the poem. So I, I can't tell you how many lines I have at this, at this point, but um, I hope a fair amount. Um, and do you do you memorize your own poems sort of by accident as you're writing them, or or did the, is that does that occupy like a different place in your brain? I for me it occupies a different place. I have memorized my own poems for certain performances, and I think some of them I could sit down and write them out, you know, and get them correctly. Um, I do prefer in a performance to read them rather than to perform them because I feel to me it feels less rehearsed and I'm more open maybe to a different interpretation on the stage. Um, but you know, I'm, I, I love going to a reading where someone recites. I do, whenever I do teach, I do make my students memorize, you know, at least one poem. And I tell them, 
you know, if you ever want to totally impress people at a dinner party or whatever, you know, you just start reciting. It doesn't, it could be a limerick. It can be the shortest poem in the world. It can be a silly poem. Everyone will stop what they were doing and there will be a hush and they will listen to you because there's just something magical about that recitation. It's, it, we, we are programmed, I think, to listen for it. And when it happens, um, everyone will stop what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Memorization was, was how I fell in love with poetry too. I was, um, um, it was a kid shoveling, uh, driveways and, um, and sidewalks at the apartment complex we lived in. Um, I'd wait, you know, wake up at five in the morning and be shoveling before school and then just reciting the poems I'd read the night before in my head. And, and there was just something, the peacefulness and the way you could like meditate on the language or something. I don't know. I didn't even, I don't know. It was just fun. And, um, and that's what, I don't know. I, I wish I do wish memorization was more a part of the the way it's taught. I think it'd be really important, which is why I love the Poetry Out Loud program. That um, yeah, that's um, fantastic. was that yeah that was Dana Joy too who who did that. And I think that's fantastic. And the great thing about um, those kind of you know memorization contests or programs is you know there will be students in the class who maybe are not the students who write the best paper or who maybe even have issues with reading, maybe there's dyslexia or whatever, um, who will be transformed by memorizing and reciting a poem. Because when you're reciting and memorizing a poem, not only do you own that poem, you embody that poem. Your brain has changed its pathways to to embody that poem. It becomes part of you and no one can take that away. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's just wonderful stuff. Do you want to do you want to read maybe two more poems from I think the next you want to read from like, right? Um, yes. I'll read a, a couple from like, um, this is actually another of my having talked all this time about rhyme and stuff. Um, this is another of my maybe, um, informed, but not really formal poems. Um, and it is about the Minotaur. I love the Minotaur and it's called art monster. So of course, as you remember, the Minotaur is half human and half bull and he is locked away in this labyrinth, which is, perhaps not unlike how many of us feel these days. And um, so he has a very unusual uh, background with his parents, art monster. My mother fell for beauty, although it was another species. Ox-eyed, dew-lapped, groomed for sacrifice. She had to devise another self to put herself in, something inhuman or beauty could not possess her. Oh, deedle mechanics. She grew huge with hybridity, rumor ripened. I was born to be amazed. She fascinated me with cats, cradles, spun threads out of my hirsute hair shirt. I was fed on raw youths and maidens when all I wanted was the cud of clover. I was named after my stepfather, dispenser of judgment. No one called me my mother's son. Minotaur, they said, oh, Minotaur, you are unnatural, grotesque. A hero will come to slay you, a hero who jilts princesses on desert islands. It is heroic to slay, to break a heart, to solve the archaic puzzle in the basement, demonster the darkness. I await this patiently as I bow to the yoke of making, scratching this earliest of inscriptions on a potsherd down here in the midden, writing left to right, then right to left, as a broken beast furrows a field. 
That was Art Monster from Like. Let's do a let's do another one. Um, should I do maybe a more formally one? Having talked all this time, um, perhaps I should read. Um, I'll read pencil next. Shall I do that one? Sure. Um, so there, I I also love poems about just everyday objects. I mean, that feeling of some suddenly looking at an object and feeling that it's strange, even though it's an everyday kind of thing. Maybe that's another lockdown effect, even though that's written before this. So this is just called pencil. Once you loved permanence, indelible. You'd sink your thoughts in a black well and called the error ink. And then you crossed it out. You canceled as you went, but you craved permanence and honored the intent. Perfection was a blot that could not be undone. You honored what was not, and it was legion. And you were sure, so sure, but now you cannot stay sure. You turn the point around and honor the erasure. Rubber stubs the page, the heart a stiletto of lead, and all that was black and white is in between instead. I'll, sc I'll scratch, I'll sketch, I'll note, I'll tentative, I'll tensile line that is not broken but pauses with the pencil, and all choice multiple, the quiz that gives no quarter, and time, the other implement that sharpens and grows shorter. And that was pencil from like um, that might be a good example of one of the things I was hoping you talk a little bit more about that we talked about in the interview. Um, you mentioned we were talking about the classics and how you were drawn to them. And you said that the classics felt more modern than modern poetry did. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit? Because I think like writing about topics like that, it, it sort of has something to do with what you were talking about, I think. Um, well, you know, I was very interested in writing poetry in high school and university. And this was, you know, mid to late eighties. I think if you looked at the average sort of literary magazine, and, and this is something to think about for the young poets, every age has its mannerisms and its time. And you may think that something is cutting edge or, you know, but there is a kind of sameness to any age of, of poetry. This is just writing in your age. Um, and I really felt, though, you know, going to a Catullus seminar that I had at the University of Georgia, um, these poems seemed just so much more modern than the things I was reading in magazines. They were, you know, Catullus was writing, of course, about heartbreak and his girlfriend, um, you know, and about her dead pet sparrow and also, you know, various, very obscene lyrics. Um, but also, you know, there's a poem inviting a friend to a dinner party, except he's broke because he's a poet. So he's like, uh, you know, this is going to be a great party if you bring the food and the booze and, you know, <laughs> um, which seemed very, I guess, in college seemed very um, current. And, um, you know, there's a poem about somebody stealing a napkin at a dinner party. This idea that anything in life, you know, whether it was obscenity or stealing a napkin could be put into a poem and that it didn't have to be. I'm trying to think of the poems, you know, kind of at that time, you know, they, there's still a little bit of this. It's that kind of maybe middle-class poem of, you know, you're sitting at the window in the morning with your coffee and you see a bird and you have an epiphany about the ordinary and the everyday and your comfort and how special but ordinary the world is. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know that kind of poem, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, there are beautiful, wonderful versions of, of that poem. I'm not saying that you can't do that. But, um, you know, there was just kind of a sameness to things. Um, and it was just exciting to me to realize that people so many thousands of years ago had, you know, very similar things to write about their friendships and their love affairs and, and their pets. And um, the idea that you could put anything in and it could be in a very tight metrical form and still have slang words or, you know, um, Catullus writes a kind of Latin that, you know, you don't have in Cicero and so forth. He's got local words and slang words and things. So um, that was something to realize that so many thousands of years, you know, pass and you could have more of a connection with that Mm -hmm. than the literary magazine sitting next to you. So that was something I learned. Yeah, that was such an epiphany for me that that not too long ago. And again, I I really I feel like I'm just ragging on teachers, but the way history is taught, (laughs) you know, where it's the dates and battles and generals and and who won this war. But then you read the poetry and and it just brings the past back into the present and you feel like you're talking to somebody who's also human. Um, and and I, I didn't really read anything, you know, in in the past until relatively recently. And it's just, I don't know, there's so, so much great things to connect with um, back there. But on, on the topic of translating, um, um, Spartacus Anagnostorus um, says some languages have more words than other languages. How difficult is it to translate verse poetry from one language to another without losing the poet's intent? I just wanted to ask just in general what your translation process is like. Um, well, I guess it does depend on the language. I mean, um, English and Greek are, are two languages that have an enormous vocabulary um, compared to many other languages. I, you know, I think French is fairly limited in some ways um, in terms of vocabulary. Um, so English and Greek, for instance, have huge vocabularies. Um, Greek, though modern Greek has some things that English doesn't have besides some grammatical things, obviously. Um, A a modern Greek poet can choose among some registers, like very distinct registers, not just a high register of diction, fancy, and a low register slangy, but there's a whole different grammar and, and structure to the words and vocabulary. Um, a kind of code switching that's really extreme. Um, so Greek has this, which where English doesn't, and you might have to decide what to do if you run into a poet. Kiki Di Mula, perhaps, is someone who, whom I haven't translated, who's supposed to be almost impossible to translate, who does this kind of where some of the metaphors are really about Greek grammar. That would be very difficult. Um, in my own case, I mostly translate. Right now I'm translating from Latin, where it's almost the opposite uh, the the vocabulary is in some ways kind of limited. The grammar is more difficult. But, you know, like Latin loves the word thing. Everything is a thing. This is a thing. That is a thing. Business is a thing. A revolutionary is a thing. Um, so maybe English would have a more um, particular vocabulary. So then you do have to kind of decide if the, if the poet had had access to English, which of these words might he use. But, you know, as a literary translator, you're not really too worried in a way about word for word. You're not producing a trot or Google Translate type thing. You're trying to, I think, get bigger concepts. Like in some cases, English may have 
a word that is best translated in another language as a phrase. Or it might go the other way around. There might be this whole phrase in another language where we actually have a very specific word for that. So you kind of want to take advantage of the tools in the language that you are working in to get as much across as you can. I don't know if that makes any sense. Generally, I translate long things, really long things, long didactic poems. Um, and I just go straight through. People have asked me, like, do you hurry to get to the fun bits? But mm -hmm. I don't do that because if I did that, I would never finish it. So I just have to, I, I have the fun bits are there as little rewards, little Easter eggs when I get to them, but I have to go straight from A to B. So that's, that's kind of how I work. Yeah. Well, knowing nothing about the translation process at all, um, there, there's a great series that we published by Art Beck um, in our little eBooks we used to do, and he called it the impertinent duet, which is how he, he characterized <laughs> I love um, translation. I, I love that phrase, but, but how I imagine it is that you sort of go sort of line by line with like a literal translation, but then it takes a ton of research and poetry to kind of shape that literal translation into um, the best representation of what the writer was trying to say. Um, so, so I imagine going back and reading biographies and every other translation that's ever been done of it in different languages. And, and is that how it works? Is it mostly like, uh, I guess it depends on how well, you know, the source language. Um, I do not, I will tend to own a lot of translations of things. Like I own a zillion translations of Kavafi or whatever. I don't, I don't tend to be reading those as I'm working unless I've hit some kind of mysterious spot where I really want to see how everybody has done the Houdini trick to get out of it, um, to see if I have can get any ideas or um, any ways not to do something. Um, I do not produce a literal before I go into the verse, because again, for me, that leap is really important. Maybe I will find the solution by the leap. And, you know, I again, I'm using rhyme and so on. Um, I do consider... It is, I think, it's not a cloning, it's a kind of sexual reproduction. So some of my DNA will get into the translation. I'm not trying to produce something that doesn't sound at all like me. I mean, I'm hoping it sounds, you know, like itself. Hmm. Um, but there will be parts of me in there that can't be helped. Um, so, you know, I'm not, it's really important, though, I think this, as you were saying, the more you know about a culture and a literature, the better you're going to be as a translator because you'll recognize an allusion to another work, for instance. So you'll realize, okay, this person is actually quoting someone else. Um, you, If something seems kind of mysterious, literally, maybe you will have seen that thing or that phenomenon or have experienced that in that place. So then you can say, oh, I know exactly what that is describing, because I have seen that happen on that side of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know, I know. So in a way, you're kind of trying to get to a meta state where you are seeing or hearing what the poet is saying, and trying to, you know, put it into your language. But I am also very aware of individual words. It's important, I think, to read things aloud. So you hear the rhythm and sounds that are in that line, if they're very strong and they're saying something, maybe that's an effect you want to try to reproduce. Yeah. 
Um, well, there are a lot of great questions. I want to try, maybe try like a lightning round type thing to get to as, <laughs> as many of these as possible. Uh, one thing, Mary Bade Carr makes a great point just about teachers, that it's not the teachers, it's the curriculum often that's the yeah. problem. Where, you know, I, and it is true. Like we, they have to teach to the test and it's these boards making the test and we need to unshackle I, teachers really is what we need to do. So thanks for pointing that out, Mary Bade. That, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I see this in my daughter. My daughter goes to an American school here and I just see it. I do see it in the curriculum where it's about you know, they're in third grade and they want them to know words like, you know, alliteration and so forth. It's like, really, could you just teach them something fun to say? And I, it's not the teacher. And, and as you say, and poetry is always put to the end of the year. And I just think you shouldn't teach poetry at all in, in elementary school. You should just every morning read a poem to them. Mm-hmm. Every morning, just read a poem, no comment, or they could draw if they want, you know, just let it soak in. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Well, and a couple of people asked different questions about um, being in Greece now. So, um, so Vicky Miko asked along those lines: Are your kids learning poetry and classics in school? If you don't mind me asking, with such accomplished parents, do your kids write too? Um, P.S. I love the artwork on your wall there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so they do go to an American school. If they were in a Greek school, I think they would actually be memorizing more poetry, which would be good. I mean, obviously, they, they're they very aware of poetry. They've been to lots of poetry readings, more than anyone should have to be have attended. Um, so they kind of know a lot about poetry in a way. Um, both of them, I think, are good writers, and both of them have expressed interest in not being poets, but being nonfiction writers or, or other things, you know, they do ask me a lot of questions about like, how do you make money from books? Do you decide how much the book costs and so forth? So they see kind of the business side. And as, as my husband is a journalist, he's also a writer and we're both freelancers. So I think in some way the the way it's affected them as they kind of understand the freelance life. I remember at third grade, my son was like, but why should I write this book report if no one is paying me? And I'm like, that is correct. But... <laughs> That is not how they're great. So also about Greece, uh, Angela Gartner asks, what kind of poetry community is there in Greece? It feels like there would be, it would be a wonderful place to write poetry. And somebody else asked too earlier, which I can't find because it's way up above, about just your sense of place and how much being there impacts your poetry. Um, well, I mean, there is a lively uh, poetry scene. Um, I, before the lockdown, uh, there were lots of events. You could always kind of go to an event of some kind. You know, there are the usual in a town, you know, groups of people that like each other better than other people and so on. Um, again, you know, as a foreigner, I can kind of, you know, go in and out. Um, but... Uh, so it has been sad that so much kind of has had to stop. Um, in some ways, like the economic crisis uh, shook up things here. I think it was very much a gerontocracy in terms of who was in control of publishing and, and so on. And I think the economic crisis kind of led to younger people starting series of readings and events and publications and online publications. So maybe that was a positive effect. Um, I'm very affected by my environment. Um, You know, I, when we first moved here, I was kind of worried, you know, is the muse going to have my forwarding address? Um, You know, so Athens is a wonderful city. It's also kind of gritty and strange and um, 
never a dull moment to the point where you kind of wish maybe there was a dull moment. Um, you know, and when we first moved here, I found it maybe a, a, a bit much, but um, now, you know, I think I kind of embrace the, the anarchic elements to it. And it's just many layers all the time. You know, you're walking around some 1970s kind of apartment blocks and you turn a corner and there's a Byzantine church and then there's the Parthenon in the background. So, um, you know, and the street is named after Empedocles or something. So there's all of that kind of happening all the time. And um, to me, that's exciting and productive, I hope. Um, well, we're kind of running up on time, but but do you mind going a little bit longer? Because um, we only we've only read um, four poems, I think, and I meant to read like eight. <laughs> um, do, you, do you want to do like maybe two poems, a question, and another poem? Do you have like another fifteen minutes? Sure. Okay, great. Okay, um, I'm trying to see what poems I had said. Uh, perhaps I will do cast irony, maybe. Okay. Because I think this gets a little bit into everyday life and classics and how they kind of maybe come together. Um, and it's not in any particular meter, but it, it's rhymed. So, and it's in tercet. So maybe you'll hear that cast irony. And it's got a very silly title, I guess. <laughs> Who scrubbed this iron skillet in water with surfectant soap? meant to cleanse, not kill it. But since its black and lustrous skin despoiled of its enrobing oils dulled, lets water in, now it is vulnerable and porous, as a hero stripped of his arms before a scornful chorus. It lacks internal consistency as ancient oral epics where a Bronze Age warrior might appeal to a boar's tusk helmet-wearing foe who has an anachronistic heart of steel, will of iron, from which metals no one has yet forged a weapon, much less pans or kettles, though there must have been between two eras awkward overlap enacted in the kitchen when mother-in-law and daughter wrangled over the newfangled over oil and water in proverbial mistrust, brazen youth subject to iron age as iron is to rust. There can be no reasoning with sarcastic oxygen. Only a reseasoning can give the vessel's life new lease. Scour off the scab the color of dried blood. Apply some elbow grease to make it fast. Anoint it. Put it once more in the fire where everything is cast. That was cast irony from like. Let's do another one. Um, I'll do another object poem. This is called Scissors. So it kind of, maybe it pairs a little bit with the, the pencil poem. Scissors are singular and plural. Uncanny. One plus one is one. Even in solitude, a pair, cheek to cheek or on a tear, knives at cross purposes, bereaving cleavers to each other cleaving, open, shut, give and take, all dichotomy in their wake. What starts with size concludes in oars, his or hers, 
mine or yours. Dibby up, slice clean, slice deep in pinked jabs or one swift sweep. The crisp sheet where they met and married. The paper where the blades are buried. Excellent poem. That's Scissors from Like. Uh, one thing you mentioned in the interview that I, th- I found really interesting was the way um, you mentioned the endings and how you like big endings. Um, can you just explain what that means? Do you th- would you think of this as a big ending? Because I kind of would, but I'm wondering what you meant by that. Well, you know, there was a point, I think, in, in the workshop world where everyone was about quiet endings um, I don't, I, I don't know if you would hear this, but you know, it was considered, I think, more sophisticated, um, to kind of just end. I don't know. I really like a poem to kind of either do the Dickinson thing where it's the top of your head coming off, or it's the click of the box shutting. Either one is fine for me. Um, I, you know, I'm okay with the big ending. It does, it does, rhyme tends to be a big ending anyway, even if it's quiet rhetorically, you know, it's like, ding. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I like that. I like Mm -hmm. big ending. I'm I'm not into the quiet endings. Yeah, I like that feeling too. And maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know, your work feels so um, like complete and whole and sturdy or something, whatever word I'm reaching for. Um, because of those those good endings that make it feel like you're done, like this is a real solid thing that just happened. Yeah. Um, so Josh Williams asked, he asked first about the alphabetizing poems and like, which we talked about in the interview for the, um, um, but, but he asked if you were alluding to the classic collections before collections had to have a single theme. Um, so can you just say just a little bit about, about that idea of theme and how that, that's, um, one of the things that's really popular these days in poetry. I think we, um, publishing the chapbooks, which are maybe different from whole books, but, um, it's very rare to see anybody even submit a chapbook that doesn't have a sort of theme. Um, it isn't telling a certain sort of longer story. Um, but in the past people used to just have collections of poems that were just collections of poems. Can you just say a little bit about where you stand on that? Uh, you know, I, if you can do a bunch of themed poems and that feels good, great. I think a lot of it has to do with MFA programs and applying for grants. And it's just easier if you're applying for something um, or submitting something to, if you have a sort of spiel, you know, like, mm-hmm. like an elevator going, pitch. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're, if you're applying for a grant, you say, I would like to go somewhere nice and sit and write some poems and have some babysitting money. People will not give you grants, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, if you want to say, I'm going to write some persona poems in the point of view of blah, 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 to discuss my struggle with X, um, it, it, it is going to be generative of poems, you know, and maybe they will be great poems or good poems. Um it, I think it just makes it easier. Uh, and, you know, if people are coming out of an MFA program and they've done a thesis, perhaps they've been encouraged, you know, to do that. I'm not wild about them in terms of reading them. I, <laughs> I mean, it could be great. I, I don't even read books of poems in order. Uh, I almost never read books of poems in order. I, I read them like I read The New Yorker. I look at the short poems first. <laughs> you know, if I really like the short poems. I look at the first and last poems and then the medium poems and then, you know, gird my loins for the long poems. <laughs> um, and I think most people don't really 
necessarily read for this is something to consider if you're like workshopping poems or in an MFA programs um, your readers in the wild including editors I think are not going to read your poems that way you know they are not aware about your thesis or are not that interested in whether the poems all hang together they're interested in whether you know they can be the ancient mariner and grab you by the collar and hold you there for the whole poem um, that's really all that matters so I think there is a, I hate the word disconnect, but disconnection um, between the professional world of poetry, which has a lot of great things in it. I'm not saying, I'm not anti any of that. And how poetry actually works in the real world, I think, mm-hmm. um, with readers who are not people in your workshop, for instance, um, who are not going to give you the benefit of the doubt you know they're just going to turn the page it's not going to be a personal thing it's just you know they have other exactly i think i I think it might be an economic thing too was just with um in the past you know there weren't as many poets and so um you uh, your own name was kind of like your own brand and you didn't need anything to distinguish yourself from all the other books being published that year because there really weren't that many books being published every year and now there are ten thousand books published every year and I think it's easier to market something to sort of say, you know, this is is a book about, you Mm -hmm. know, it's very hard to say, you know, this is a book about different poems. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It really doesn't get you anywhere unless maybe you're A.E. Stallings and you can pull it off. Um, So uh, another question from um, unrelated, though, from Josh Williams, Um, he asks, he says, modulation tends to make a poem more pleasurable beyond metrical modulation and rhyme. In what other ways do you modulate your poems? Uh, well, I think maybe the really big modulation is is diction and register. And this is actually where I think poems tend to fall flat. Um, if you've pitched everything at the same diction and register, it, it can become difficult to hold the attention. And um, as someone who sometimes teaches at conferences, I mean, it's just kind of interesting because you'll in a given summer, you'll get all of these different manuscripts from different people in different programs, and yet there will be a sameness. Again, everyone is swimming in the same times or whatever. But, you know, the last um, summer the, in the before times, and I was at two separate conferences with all of the manuscripts, and I think out of all of the manuscripts in two separate conferences, there was not a single exclamation point. And I thought, you know, that's so strange because you know, on social media, whatever, every, everything's exclamation point or you're insulting someone. But all of these poems had this, you know, this sedateness that you couldn't have an exclamation point and then, you know, a period and then, you know, a question mark. Um, and I think that's something to think about is, is there kind of a range of, um, is there a word that you think, probably shouldn't be in this poem. Maybe I should get that in there. I'm kind of thinking a lot about that even, about, you know, having a very modern word in a poem that's about very ancient things or or vice versa. I I love it when I think about these two words that shouldn't have anything to do with each other are in the same poem. So I think a lot of it is people should have exclamation points in poems. I mean, you know, if you're using them in social media, have one every so often in a poem. That's fine. 
Yeah, that that really, I mean, a lot of what you said speaks a lot to how, you know, we read just submissions as an editor. Like we're looking to, like you said, um, be grabbed and taken away. And then also by surprise, like we don't, I mean, the worst thing you can do is to know where a poem's going to go and have nothing surprising, you know, that, that you wouldn't have expected there. And so, you know, even, you know, as one little example, but an exclamation point is something that, yeah, doesn't, isn't included very often. It's true. Um, well, I cannot believe we've gone over an hour already. It seems like, a, I mean, we just started. But do you want to finish off? Uh, we'll have to have you on like every time you have a new book for sure. I hope you keep coming back. But um, do, you want, do you want to finish out with one last poem? Um, sure. Uh, I, perhaps I will finish with, um, I had this list of poems here. Um, should I do empathy? Perhaps I'll do that. Yeah, sure. Or Swallows, what do you say? Um, I, I love yeah. them both. Actually, those are two of my favorites in the book, so either way. Okay, well, maybe I'll do Swallows, which I don't do as often. Okay. Um, so this is a poem about Swallows. <laughs> um, so the title is Doing Its Job. Um, it's also an Ottawa Rima, so that was kind of fun. Um, the difficult thing about Ottawa Rima, if you're a rhymer, is that you have to come up with three rhymes, um, and it turns out my brain is very used to thinking of two rhymes, but coming up with three. And that was kind of fun to, and again, a little subconscious push of what happens. Um, and, you know, this is a poem that's in conversation with Ovid and um, Metamorphoses and all of that. But uh, And maybe you can listen to ideas of where there are big register shifts, shifts or whether there are strange words that come in, because these are that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Um, okay, Swallows. Every year the swallows come and put their homestead in repair and raise another brood and skim and boomerang through summer air and reap mosquitoes from the hum of holidays, a handsome pair, one on the nest, one on the wire. Cheat, 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 the two conspire to murder half the insect race and feed them squirming to their chicks. They work and fret at such a pace and natter in between with clicks and churs. They lift the raftered place, seaside taverna with their tricks of cursive loops and Morse code call, both analog and digital. They seem to us so coupled, married, so flustered with their needful young, so busy housekeeping, so harried. It's hard to picture them among the origins of myth a buried secret rape, a cut-out tongue, two sisters wronged where there's no right till transformation fledges flight. But Ovid swapped them in the tale so that the sister who was forced becomes instead the nightingale who sings as though her heart would burst. It's Ovid's stories that prevail, and thus the swallow is divorced twice from her voice, her tuneless chatter, and no one asks her what's the matter. These swallows, though, don't have the knack for sorrow, or we'd not have guessed, though smartly dressed in tailored black, spend no time mourning, do not rest. One scissors forth, one zigzags back. They take turns, settled on the nest, or waiting on a perch nearby to zero in on wasp or fly. They have no time for tragic song, as dusk dis stills and flicker the days are long but not as long as yesterday the night comes quicker and soon the season will be wrong knackered cross they bitch and bicker like you and me they never learn 
and every summer they return. Um, it's one of those big endings that I love. And, um, and every line in that poem, too, just is so quotable. Uh, which is, I just, I love that, that poem. Um, you could really like every, every poem we publish, um, I, you know, I excerpt a little bit on social media and sometimes it's hard to find a, a phrase that sort of stands on its own and is poetic in the right way. And that poem is just full of my, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. Um, but anyway, th- Alicia, thanks so much for being a guest. Um, hope you can come back sometime soon um, when your selected book is out. Um, just always a pleasure to talk to you and, um, yeah, and thank you for all the wonderful questions and the conversation. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Yes, yeah, so A.E. Stallings uh, with a, just a wonderful reading and conversation. I, I just love A.E. Stallings and um, hope you too. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we have an open mic for everybody who's new. Um, um, the open mic prompt this week was to write a poem using the four elements, which is so strange. I mean, every every swear, every um, these these prompts um that we do megan makes a list and i just pulled the next one on the list so three months ago um megan picked that prompt and and the four the four greek elements was the prompt this week to try to use them in a poem um and then in the conversation before we talked about how um the greek alphabet the the word for that is the elemanum elemanium um anyway it's all based on elements and it's just so strange um to have that relationship there and um another thing strange happened we had a bridge that were being constructed. It closed the day that um, we did the interview, like six months ago. And today is the opening day for that bridge. Um, what, I don't know. The world's so weird. Anyway, that, that was the prompt for this week, was uh, to write poems by elements. But you don't have to share poems for the prompt if you don't want to. They can be any poems you'd like to share. And uh, let me put up the numbers for how to do it. Uh, first of all, if you'd like to share a poem, open mic at rattle.com. Email it there right now so we have it and I can put it on screen as you read it, which is always nice to read along. Um, and then it, there are two ways to join. You can either join by, um, um, by Skype. Send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word. I'll call you when the time is right. Um, just say hi to Rattle Poetry over Skype. Um, and uh, if you'd like to join my phone, the number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Again, just let it ring a few times, hang up, and that puts you on the open mic reading list. I'll just call you back. So wait around for another hour, and you'll get a call back. And then you'll be live on the air when I do. Now, I'm going to take a really quick break. Uh, before I do, I'm just going to tell you that next week's guest is going to be Anthony Tao. Um, Anthony, uh, we nominated his um, poem from Poets Respond, Coronavirus in China, over a year ago uh, for a Pushcart Prize. A wonderful poet um, and poem, one of my favorite that we published last year. Um, and a really interesting person. He's an American living in China in Beijing. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about the poetry scene in, in China. Um, he also has this band, Poetry Times Music. I'm not sure how he says that, but Poetry X Music. And they do um, spoken word, poetry, music. They have several albums. So we'll be talking about the relationship between music and poetry, too. His newest album, um, this is with Leanne Halton, is uh, The Last Tribe on Earth. So that'll be next week. He's in Beijing. But he's going to be doing it on his morning. So we'll be doing it at the regular time, Tuesday, March 9th at 9 p.m. Eastern. So uh, join us then. I'm going to stand up and stretch just for a minute, get um, some poems set up to share, and then we'll do the open lines. Looking forward to it. So I'll be right back in maybe 30 seconds.
thanks so much for uh, giving me a chance to, to stand up. And uh, the, again, the prompt for this week that we're doing for Open Lines. Uh, but you can share whatever you want. So you can share poems about current events. You can share any poem that you'd like to share whatsoever. If you've published something recently, just send me the link if it's online. I can show it online as you read. But it's always fun to share poetry, and that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Now, the prompt, once again, for this week, though, if you chose to write a prompt poem, was to write a poem about one or more of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. And I did not finish my poem this week. It was one of those weeks where um, I just, I, I wrote, like, really, I wrote two stanzas of a three stanza poem, and, and I was racing to try to finish the last stanza before the show started, and I didn't, I didn't make it. But here's Megan's poem. Um, and Megan wrote a poet's respond poem that covers... The, it's a it's a double a du- doing double duty it's a poet's respond poem and it's a um earth uh wind kind of poem from some of the elements so uh here this is megan's poem upon hearing the first recorded sounds from the surface of mars i admit it i cried spoonful of frozen cereal halfway to my lips my headphones alight with the static whisper of the alien wind Outside, the pansy on the patio table nodded its cheerful face. I bought it a few days ago at an outdoor garden center, the only place I've been in months. A single pansy in a plastic pot. I drove an hour for this, to stand six feet away from arguing couples and sweating employees, toting shrubs on their hips the way a mother slings, carries a fussy baby. Because I wanted something bright and alive, that could sit in the cold for weeks and weeks and not die. There are no flowers on Mars, but there's a wind that sounds like our wind. And for a moment, I was there in that wind, and I was here with the flowers, and I was everywhere a person can go to bring something back, set it down, say, this is for you, listen. And that's Megan's poem, Upon Hearing the First Recorded Sounds from the Surface of Mars. Um, so let's see what you have for us today. Um, let's see. Let's call up T.R. Paulson first. See what T.R. had for us. Hi, Tim. Hey, T.R. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Did you want to come in on video or just uh, the audio? I think I just pushed the video button. No, I have to do something. <laughs> uh, it, well, it might not be coming on. Sometimes other programs have hijacked your camera. There. Oh, here you come. Reaction. Great. Well, good to see you. Thanks for uh, for joining in. Oh, yeah, it was so good. It was just the best luck in the world. I love A.E. Stalling so much. <laughs> and and by best luck, oops, let me see. I'm trying to get you. I, I didn't have your, I had your only side of your face on the screen. Um, but yeah, so so by luck, you mean uh, that you had today off. Yeah. Um, the poem I was going to read was about work, ironically. <laughs> uh, what, what was it that you wanted to read? Um, I'll try. I want to date a man who's like a dog from Rattle 69. Okay, sure. Let me, let me pull it up on uh, the website then. Not that was the issue about, um, work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's a perfect poem to read right now when you have a nice Tuesday off. Okay. I want to date a man who's like a dog. Go ahead whenever you're ready. I want to date a man who's like a dog. Confession of a UPS driver. This didn't begin with dogs. But with a stack of boxes and the twisting of my knee between, beneath them, even as they smacked the pavement, then the doctor's quick decree, a contusion, just a bruise. 
You'll be vended in a week or two. My boss agreed and left me on my route where dogs friended me for treats. At first, my knee would tighten. At night, until it could not be extended in the morning without pain, lightened by ibuprofen, it loosened with every stride I took and every box I touched, but heightened from one day to the next with the pull and slide of a torn MCL. The doc was wrong. I smiled at humans, smothered truth with pride. I've read that dogs can hear a whistled song from miles away, can smell agony through layers of flesh. They nosed my knee and used their tongues to slurp it all away. Those pink conveyors, wet and unafraid to find something, to feel, to take. Excellent. And uh, that was uh, from Rattle number 69, the tribute to service workers. Uh, I want to date a man who's like a dog. And uh, we didn't get to um, one of the questions for TR or for um, AE Stallings. Um, and, and maybe I'll ask you instead, how do you um, come to the, the, the certain form that, that a poem is going to take? Since you're a formal poet, is it an emergent? Do you start writing first and then realize the form? Or do you say, I'm going to write a villanelle and then you write a villanelle? Um both yeah um that a lot of times a lot of times i'm backwards from what how my peers say i should be that mm. oh well now you've tried this in form maybe you should try it maybe it'll get better if you write it in free verse mm -hmm. but actually i find the opposite that i'll write it first in free verse and then it'll just sound just it'll fall flat i'll say well i might as well just write an essay <laughs> yeah so then i'll write it in form but the trick like a stallings was talking about is that you don't you let yourself be loose you let the form dictate where it wants to go. And um, I don't know if you, I mean, you, you're into taking stats about things, but I take my own personal stats about my life. Mm -hmm. Three of my five rattle poems are terzarimas. Oh, and wow. This is a <laughs> Interesting. And the other two are formal too. The other, you've no, you've emphatically rejected every free verse poem <laughs> I've ever sent you. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, like we were talking about um, earlier that, that, that looking for things that are different is something that that's always important to me, you know, looking through poems. I don't, I want every time it shows up in an inbox or you turn your page for it to be a surprise what it is. And so since most people are writing in free verse these days, the, the formal poems really stand out in a way that, um, that helps. So, um, pr thanks for being one of the people who, who write uh, formal poems still. TR. Yeah. And there's um, not a lot of terzarimas out there, even among formal, but it's the form that comes the easiest to me. Hmm, I don't, I, it, it just flows. I, yeah. I, I well, don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining and sharing that. Yep. Thanks. Yep. Bye. Okay. Yeah, that was T.R. Paulson. We published her in Poets Respond a couple times and in two issues, I think. Um, let's see. Next up, let's do, let's do um, Kristen Linnea Ryberg. Oh, she wants to read one from my book. Okay. That, that'll be interesting. Hi, uh, Kristen. How are you doing? Okay. Ready to go. Well, I guess you got my little note. This is uh, from a book called American Fractal. I'm reading somebody else's poem. Well, thank you. It's fun well, to. Um... It's fun to uh... Oh, I'm still getting an echo. I'm still getting an echo. Oh, really? Well, I turned off the video on my. Maybe it's. I think it's from the speakerphone. Oh, okay. Let me take that off. Okay, good. We can do it this way. Okay, much better. Well, yeah. I've just enjoyed your book so much, and um, it seemed like uh, this poem had to do with water, so I thought I'd I'd read it. 
Well, that's very nice of you. You know, I was um, I wanted people to call in and share other poets' poems too. I didn't think I never occurred to me that someone would share one of mine. That's really that's really fun. Okay, so um, yeah, I have it right here. I'll put it up and you can read it. Okay, I'll give it a shot. All right, before the flood, rain again on the radar, and I've got the towels ready, tracing all the cracks. Ruined books like bricks to hold them down. Like always, it's the binding. That's first to go. Glue seeping up the spine. Ink turns sticky. The faces of the text bleeding together like Siamese twins. Wet paper is twice the weight, floating in dirty water like a sponge. But sink or swim, words are wasted. On television, a man from Big Bear who drove down to the coast to fill his truck with sandbags. History relieves itself, he tells the reporter on scene, and I think he means it shits like everyone else. But it could have been Freudian. Either way, the writing is on the wall, a brown line knee-deep. Well, that was fun to hear. Thanks for uh, for sharing that poem from from my old book. I, I appreciate it, um, Renee or Kristen. You are welcome. <laughs> I'm going to uh, continue to tune in. I loved A.E. Stallings. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Thank you so much. Okay. Take Bye. care. Bye. Um, yeah, that that poem. I you know moving to um, California. One of the striking things was how how terrible we are at dealing with rain. There's just nowhere for water to go. And my apartment would flood every time it rained. It leaked from the roof, water coming up from the floor. Um, I lived there for, for nine months, and that's why. Hello. Hey, Patricia, this is uh, Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Yes, I did. Uh, it's called uh, The Mockingbird. Okay, let me... Uh... Um, okay, here we see. go, The Mockingbird. Yeah, let me put it in a Word document so um, I don't show your email address. Is there anything you want to say about it before we start? Just click my video. Oh, there you are. I thought we were calling you yeah. on the phone. I'm a little discombobulated today. Okay, there we go. Perfect. Um, yeah, so it's great to see you, Patricia. And let me put the, um, like I said, the poem in a uh, Word document. Because okay. otherwise I'll, I'll show the world your email address. And I like to avoid doing that. Well, a great interview today with uh, Alicia. That was, I was just so happy to hear her. Yeah, yeah. I've just always been such a fan of her work, and then um, and the one thing we do um, interviews in the winter is the only time where it's not based on a theme. So for the mm -hmm. poets that I really want to get in rattled who've never been in rattled before, that's like my one chance once a year to ask somebody. And um, I finally got um, Alicia to be be the poet this this time. Um, okay, so this your poem is up, the mm -hmm. Mockingbird. Is there anything you want to say about it? Um. No, it, it was kind of a spontaneous poem because of this experience of, of this Mockingbird song. Um, they, they always start at a particular time in February or March, and this year it was February 25th. And so I wrote this poem. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Go ahead. Uh, the Mockingbird. I had just pulled into my driveway and turned off the engine when he began to sing the first mockingbird of spring. It was February 25th. I got out of the car and just stood a while, letting his clear notes wind around my heart like they always do. Such happiness this brings me. I know he's not singing to please me or anyone else, or even himself, 
but to mark out his territory or attract a mate. But that doesn't matter to me. I couldn't see him high in the leafy treetops, but I knew he'd be doing his little mockingbird dance, dipping from side to side on a high branch, twitching his striped tail to show off the flash of white. He sings without stopping, a continuous melody, a river of it carried on the evening air, a monogram that's his alone, echoing over the rooftops announcing his supremacy. This prodigy started voice lessons in the nest, later refining his repertoire by listening to other birds, always adding and revising. The process rather puts me in mind of families I've seen, everyone's head bent over a screen, thumbs twitching, endlessly scrolling, liking, posting, following. Oh, excellent. I love that ending, talking about surprises a little bit. Did not see it going in that direction. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. It was Patricia Rockwood with um, The Mockingbird. Let me uh, fix this too. So I have have new um, show art set up. And um, some of my settings are a little different, which is why I'm a little jumping around here. Um, Let's see. Next up, let's do... Um, let's see, Nivedita here. Oh, this one's in the middle of the night for Nivedita, but she has a prompt poem based on the four elements, and she's asking if I'll read it for her. I'd be happy to. Yeah, I can read any poems for anybody if you'd like, as long as you don't mind me butchering them. Um, and so this is Nivedita Karthik uh, from India, of course, and it's night there, so she would like to um, have me read this poem, The Four Elements for the Prompt. The Four Elements. The breeze that stirs through our soul allows us to ascend. No mere flight of fancy this, the wild west wind that bends, barks to its will, now lifts us up and sets us free. The strength of the mother imbued in our bones makes us tall and strong. No mere surviving for us, but thriving. The immutable mountain that stood the test of time now stands beside us and grounds us firm. The heat of the sun that scorches through our heart burns away pain and sorrows. No mere fire, this, but a raging blaze, this tiny candle flame of our galaxy that stands inconsequential in the vast reaches of space, now burns in solidarity with our dreams and wishes. The serenity of a babbling brook that flows through our veins, heals our wounds and restores our calm. No mere gurgling and burbling from us, this prodigious pool of vast water that moves with the elements yet holds its place, now affords us the same sense of sang-froid. We don't own the elements, they don't own us, yet we are a part of them, just as they are a part of us. Symbiosis. That was Nivedita Karthik, of course. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivedita. Another lovely poem. Always a pleasure. Um, Let us go to, we have a um, first time caller here, and I got to make sure I get to all the first time callers. It's uh, Raistlin Allen. And let's see. Yeah, we have a poem here too. This is Conflagration, a zodiac love poem from me to me. Raistlin, hello, how are you doing today? Hello, good. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I don't know if you want to click on the video to um, bring that in or just have audio is fine too. I'm trying to figure that out. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a little camera button. 
Hello, let me uh, let me shrink this. You have a great internet connection. There you go. So what do you have to share for us today? So mine is actually, it's based off the prompt. It's a two elements, wind and fire. It's supposed to be like sort of a conversation between my sun sign and moon sign. Interesting. So... And, and what are sun signs and moon signs? I don't really understand uh, astrology much. So the sun sign, I don't even know. The sun, one that like almost everyone knows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the, you know, like I'm an I'm an Aquarius. Yeah, it's it's uh -huh. the the moon sign is kind of you're more. Um, it's more deeply personal in a way, but it's also uh, something that comes out more with people who are closer to you. Interesting. And I'm probably yeah not explaining it at the best but <laughs> <laughs> and, and how do you um how do you tell like what like if you're born so i'm born in june that means i'm, I'm a gemini how do, right. and my is my sun sign so how does um like where is the sun and why is it a gemini do you know where <laughs> where is <laughs> like, like like how do you like look at the sky and tell what your signs are that's what i'm is it when the where the moon is when it's, you're, it's based you're, on a lot of like so what I got out of it when I, I just look, I had looked up my birth chart. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a lot of it is beyond me as well. Um, <laughs> but what I get from it is that like, you know, the, the sun sign is the one everyone knows. It's like this half of this month, this half of the other, you know, I was born in early February, so I'm an Aquarius, but there's also, um, I guess your moon sign can change based on the time Mm -hmm. of day that you were born and that so if you have like the exact time of day exact like i guess the moon's passing yeah, through a different yeah. sign i have, have to look this up I, it never occurred to me to actually think about what it is now i really want to know i'm sorry to put you on the spot yeah. there yeah no, I actually like i'm imagining it's some kind of like you know the the direction the sun is relative to the earth and where the moon is relative to the earth points to a certain constellation i don't know i'm gonna look it up after the show yeah, but anyway it's, it's, it's really interesting and complex so mm -hmm. it's kind of like <laughs> i just i just found out my moon sign the other year and i found that it gave me more of a understanding of myself so this is i guess sort of a reflection on that and your, and your moon sign is, it says it on the poem here, I think, Aries moon. Aries. Okay, okay, let's hear the poem, Conflagration. Conflagration, a zodiac love poem from me to me. One, Aquarius sun. At eight years old, I made a box inside my home, my home. Because even in the four walls of my heart's growing chambers, I had to make something purely me. Inside of the box, I painted green. I swelled in gestation birthing my future self, who crawled right out and sat, pondering the odds. Why possible is my favorite word. How I can decry the nonsensical parables of flight put forth by whimsical dreamers while spending my nights studying the mechanics of wings. Everywhere I go, I bring myself. I used to think this was a curse, but now it only saves time, cuts out those who flinch back or laugh at the rawness of my crooked soul, tagging on my heels like an ugly familiar, a shadow I'm loyal to through the bone, but also resent, dear Zodiac, because I would like to be beholden to no one, and sometimes this includes me. And yet, if I leave it behind, I will never forgive myself. Whoever said the head is an animal is 100% right, and the terror of that creature is that it is both caged and free, 
a crazy record smacking and grinding out of tune. Sometimes it makes me tired. Sometimes all I want is to sleep, accept an easy answer, let the blood of outer living run down my chin. Two, Aries Moon. In dreams, I imagine myself, one elbow out the window of a convertible car, sleek and black like a pavement panther, groaning with, like, with gear, sh gear shift history. Cigar hanging from my lips, I hit the gas and my heart lightens, unafraid. I am jacking up tomorrow's promises on the way home to a lit castle where I'll sip Amarone and pray to every person I've ever loved and the ghosts in me too. Exchanging secrets in my state-of-the-art hot tub with my closest friends and family, our smiles crooked moonbeams. To think, we'll laugh, voices echoing over acres of tender night. To think they ever doubted us. In day, I perform business meetings, smelling of dark cologne, smiling at opportunities kindly like children. Everyone thinks they know me, and this could be its own poem. I do not ever get close. I do not ever lie. I have taken a giant bite of fear and I'm no longer afraid, fluttering my fingers at the wind, this heat, and my son, my center. We understand one another at last. We have all wanted nothing more than for my eyes to become a rich brown haven, a cave for those who need to be hidden, and then, all at once, seen. I don't want to break anyone's heart. I only want to enter my own. Three, air meets fire. Every year is spent blustering on, water-bearing bucket growing heavy, wild wind rushing forward, blind to destination. Until the day, my solitary sun angles for my hidden moon and something catches, the resounding refraction like light glancing off a fun house of mirrors in a desert full of naked trees. Flame. Here we go, I can finally hear their dry branches creak. Let us make some magic. Letting go, it turns out, is a lot like falling apart. There's a comfort now in knowing I am only ever the sum of my parts. But those parts, by God, those parts are made of stars. Excellent. Thanks so much for that. A great, great self-character sketch there through the, through the <laughs> uh, Zodiac. I feel like I know you well already, even though you're a first-time caller. Thanks so much for, for calling in. Yeah. Yep. Have, great. Yep. Have a good one. I hope you do it again soon. You too. Yep. Bye. It was Raceland Allen with Conflagration. And um, let us see. Let's call up Christine Bisson. I'm kind of jumping around more than normal. But let's see what Christine Bissonette has. For us today. You too. Hey, I hear myself in the background, so X out of whatever you're listening to. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And then if you want to bring yourself in the video, um, it's the camera button. Yes. Here you come. Hello. Hi. Um, I have to I have to adjust your video too. I found I found a way to fix this problem I've always been having, but now it, it takes a lot more adjustment to get it right every time. But it's better than it used to be. Um, so so Christine, what do you have for say? And you're calling from I think you said Vancouver, Washington last time. Uh, Vancouver, BC, in Canada. I'm ah, Vancouver, Canada. BC. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And my um, I didn't mention my father-in-law is a Bissonette from Canada too. But I he's heard from that. the the Sudbury area. Okay. I'm, I'm a, my father was Quebec, is Quebecois. Mm -hmm. uh, so this from Quebec. Uh, yeah. It could be related. It's possible. Possibly. <laughs> I think there's quite a few bisonets, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I wonder. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, so what, um, what, a, what poem do you have for us? 
Uh, so I have a poem called The Amounted. Um, I got really interested in metaphor over the last couple of years and read this book called Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff and um, Mark Johnson. That's about the way metaphors shape the way that we experience the world. And I started playing with just reimagining a metaphor for time in various ways. And this is called The Amounted. Now, the poem I have here is The Approach. Is there a oh, different? The Approach. Yep, no, The Approach. I have <laughs> oh. the wrong one. Okay. The Approach. The Elemental was the other one. Yeah, sorry. The okay. Approach. Both A poems. Okay. So The Approach. Your time is a limited resource. Don't waste it. Spend it without consideration. Try approaching today with prosperity. Feel for the edges of lack, and instead of pulling them towards you to gather what's there, give in to your howling hunger and hate those habits approached with devotion. Who knew time was aimless? Your intention was never to stay where you are, but you do. Despite you what you wanted, lose your curiosity for a while, sitting in silence, begging for it all. Your time is a moving object. Don't miss it, then run far behind it, demanding a lift. Try starting today with fluidity. Instead of departing into what is done or should be, listen to the water as it changes form and wonder at its apparent independence. Is it true that water wins every argument with time or are they co-conspirators, whipping around the corner just out of reach, perhaps also laughing mercilessly? Your time is an hourglass, dripping sand into a bottomless lake. Don't wait for it to overflow before interrupting its work with desire. You won't need to set fire to it all. Perhaps time can multitask just fine. It's been practicing, repeating the residue of your reflection, which it does not have itself and is needing a teacher. Perhaps you could show time how to choreograph an award-winning dance worthy of applause. But what if time is an individual's heartbeat, a symphony played by a collection of pebbles rolling down an empty stream, each imagining themselves to be alone, encumbered by the resolute surrender of movement within movement, moving like a mystery, not even noticing that time might belong to every living thing. A pendant carried with pride, this is the sound of my life, adding its rhythm to the world. For a while, at least, you pad sensation into paper and whisper your triumph. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was Chris, um, Christine Bissonette with The <laughs> Approach. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, that, I love that poem. It really picked up at the end. A lot of uh, great, great rhythms and momentum in that one. Um, let us see who we have next. Try to go in the order they were received, although I haven't been doing a good job of that. And Kathy Gibbons is next up. Let's call up Kathy. Hey, Kathy, you're on the air in the Robert Rattlecast. Would you uh, like to share a poem? Sure, Tim. I'd love to sh share a poem. And um, it's one I submitted for Poetry Spawn because it's kind of reflective of what's going on in our life right now. Um, but it's also about water, so I thought it fit oh. the theme as well. Oh, perfect. So what was the, what was the Poets Respond theme? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, um, about the situation in Texas and uh, mm -hmm. the problem with water here <laughs> right now. Okay, so this is Rung Out, and I have it Correct. ready whenever you are. Okay. Rung Out. This time, we have no water. Hung out to dry in Houston towns, ice 
apocalypse. Twelve days now, we wait for water, which is slower than Godot. There have been many times here when water is too much, overflowing, ever-fluent, even drowning at its worst. Ironic now, there is just none. The pipes are squeaky clean and empty, bottles going gone, snow shoveled, melted down to fill the odd commode. Ice melt, noonday sun, the next day, caught in every kind of bucket we can muster up. Then rain that is collected, precious crystal drops. These we might can even drink. I hear that you don't have to boil wine. Absent-mindedly, we turn the spigots often to wash in midst of COVID, but no water comes to hand. It comes to mind as I am dreaming of a shower, shampooed hair, a glistening to fill my empty coffers, assuage my thirst, give solace to my sodden soul, fill the weeping world. Sometimes we can't live with wealth of water, but in such drought we cannot live without. Excellent pun. That was rung out by Kathy Gibbons. How are things doing in Texas now? You're in, you're in Houston, um, right? Uh, we're in, yeah, we're in Houston, and we still have no running water. Um, oh, really? Oh, we're wow. We're hoping to have an appointment with a plumber on Friday. Plumbers are, plumbers are like gold. They're, they're harder to get to than uh, vaccination appointments right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, so, but, I mean, we've been lucky in respect to, you know, many other people, so we're, we're still hanging in here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So is it a, a boiling water thing, or do you just have no water coming No, out of we have no water? running. Well, the water was restored in our neighborhood about a week, Ten days, eight days ago, something like that, and um, but we had a major leak from um, a filter machine we have on the side of our house, mm. and so we can't turn it back on right now um, until we repair that, and and we get to wait in anticipation of seeing whether we have any burst pipes as well in the house. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of <laughs> excited to. Uh, you know, get water back, and on the other hand, I'm a little nervous about it, which is my continual relationship with water. It's one of fear and need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. We we had the same. We had a month without running water here um, oh, in September. God. It was rough. Um, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, frightening. <laughs> it is, but it's just it's just amazing how the news, though they you know it's like everything you know it's the only thing that matters for a day, and then they they never follow up. Yeah, and people in Jackson, Mississippi as well, they've been mm-hmm. suffering. I don't, I don't think they have their city water back yet. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and there will be, well, I, I believe we'll have to boil it again, as you know, once mm-hmm. we get it going. So well, anyway. Yeah, well, I hope it all gets back, back soon. <laughs> thanks, Tim. Thanks, yeah. thanks for the show. It's been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that poem. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was Kathy Gibbons from Houston with Rung Out. Um, let it see. We have a few more. I think we'll just, um, as long as everybody still wants to, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll let it go over time a little bit if we uh, have to. It's early. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't see anywhere. No problem. You're, you're here, here and clear now. How are you doing today? Good. I'm listening and working at the same time. So. Ah, perfect. Um, and what do you have that you wanted to share? A, a prop poem, I think. Yeah, it was the, um, no camera today, too. (laughs) Yeah, no problem. (laughs) You'll see me some eventually. Um, Yeah, it's the earth where I stood. Mm -hmm. I've not 
nothing really to say about it. I just, you know, it's something I, you know, wrote pretty quickly. I just, you know, it was kind of one of those ones I tried to do like an, like an A-B-A-A-B kind of from a Robert Frost poem. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to do a little bit more form. So I just kind of started writing. So I don't think I turned out it does rhyme but uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it screwed it up already but yeah well like we talked about i think it's great to, to just be working in that and, and um i think it's a good idea so i'm glad you are whenever you're ready yeah go ahead oh, oh i'm sorry okay <laughs> earth where i stood i took a sip from the open cracked bottle underneath the sun in the woods My eyes closed against the sparkle of the rays peeking through the clear skies of the peaceful place I stood. Breathing in the pines and nature's enriched perfumes of crushed earth, I think about my friends flying above the acres of trees who eventually reach the cities, hard gray surfaces their hope is to return to the sanctuary of the sleepiness greens. I want to stay in that stillness of the day. A chirp of my own alerts me it's time to go. I expand my wings to lift off to find my prey. Ripped plastic catches my foot. I feel dismay. Excellent. I could feel where the the rhymes were pulling you through, too. Uh, You can kind of see how that works. Yeah, I, I and. I was just thinking of like all the litter and stuff. And I, I, I at first I was going to be a runner, but I ended up a bird. So I don't know. <laughs> well, well, thanks so much for sharing that. It was Earth Where I Stood, Angela Gartner. Thanks so much, Angela. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Um, let me go to Brent Stauffer. Yep. It just kicked on. Okay. Here we go. Yep. There you hey, go. Hey, we made it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me let me get you resized. Sweet. Okay. And I can see you, so you figured out your. Uh... No, it just didn't go bad this week. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I don't know. I think it might my my theory, which I haven't tested because yeah. I have to crawl underneath the desk. I think I have um, <laughs> a bunch of different USB ports on like an extension. I think that might be overheating after like an hour, and so oh, wow. and so it might be that that like USB port goes bad because these two extra cameras. Um, for Skype or um, on, the, on that UB sort of thing. So um, that might be it, but I don't know. But I don't want to crawl back and take take all the <laughs> wires apart, you know? So I'm just hoping it fixes itself. Um, okay. But anyway, so so what do you have for us today, Brent? Oh, well, I've got um, actually a Frost poem ah. that we, we didn't get around to last week. And, um, and I, I thought that I... I forgot how early it was today. I thought I had time later on to write my element poem. So um, yeah, that's what but, happened. To, that's what happened to me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, uh, but we didn't share this one last time, so I, I figured it, it's a uh, it was worth a go. Perfect. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Um, oh, so <clears throat> the um, um, just real quickly, I'll say that I subscribe to the interpretation of uh the road less taken poem that there really was no difference in the in the path and that he's just looking back at it later and going like you know what uh i took the one less taken that's what i did yeah uh, yeah exactly. so, i think he I, I think i read he actually was specifically like making fun of a friend of his 
Um, so I think like in his own letters, he, he explained like who he was like poking fun at with that poem. Like, cause it was some guy who always had an excuse for. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And there's, there's a, there's a, you, a, you in this poem and um, it's up to you to decide if it's uh, you, the reader, or if it's that guy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I want to hear this. So, Let, yeah. Let's okay. go. Uh, returning to the roads. The battered black and white birches stand now, not unlike they did then, splendid in badges of transient gold. This deep in the woods, no wild boys have swung them into human meaning. The sky is wounded and bleeding out through darkening branches. My black boots crush black leaves. Why'd I come back here to see what I saw, know what I knew? The diverging paths are the same as always. All these ages passed, and I never told anyone but you how I flipped a coin in my mind, one trail being so alike the other. In either case, under this white jolt of hair, the body of an old man would now be shuffling along in his tweedy old man clothes, wondering if he had said enough. <laughs> that is great. A, a retelling of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks so much for sharing that, Brett. Yeah. A lot of fun. It was, it, was a, it was a good prompt. Yeah. 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 I thought so too. Thanks, Brent. Thanks a lot, Tim. Yep. Bye. Bye. It was Brent Stoffer with Returning to the Roads. Uh, we have an unknown caller, which I think is always um, uh, Carlton Johnson asking me to read for him. Um, but if you're trying to get through and you can't because you're you have like a block up on the caller ID, um, you might have to f- reach me a different way and let me know that. So, um, you know, if, if you tried this a few times and I'm not calling you back, it's because you're unknown on the caller ID and um, email me uh, just to let me know. Give me your phone number that I can call you that way uh, when you when you share your poem. Um, let us do. Let's see. Do we have a Carlton Johnson? Because I'm assuming that's who it is. And then we also have um, uh, Carla Schwartz. We have a Terry Offner's here, but I don't see any. Okay, so um, I'm going to call up first. Actually, I think first I'm going to read Carlton Johnson's. No, wait. Maybe we don't have a Carlton. Um, I'm going to call up uh, Carla Schwartz then. Hello, I'm going to mute you right now. Okay. Hi, Tim. Excellent. Hang on. Okay. Hello, Carla. So, How are you doing? Um, I am doing well. I am doing well. It's a beautiful sunny day here, uh, although chilly. Um, and I had sent you two poems, but I'll just read the one uh, poem called The Woodpile, which is uh, a poem that actually first appeared in Leveler in 2018. Um, and it is um, it is about fire with some water in there, too. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Carl. I'm so glad you could share this. Let's go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it up. Okay. The Woodpile. When all seems coal... Stir the ashes until a small plume drifts toward the neighbors through a chimney opened in the igloo formed when you pile the snow higher atop the cinders glowing from the last stirred embers to staunch the fire. The black, gray, choking smoke from the pyre, tall as you are, and you pile more wood with fury, squint to ward off the heat of the inferno. As you carry the bundles and place them, these 
small logs into the flames you light from kindling and paper. And with each bundle, you lower, your lower back burns from the load, the load of limbs you sawed and clipped, bundle-sized, and now your whole back burns as faced with mounds of unruly wood, you hold back tears the only way you know how, with saw in hand, with your brawn. Excellent. I love that poem. Thanks so much for sharing it. The Woodpile by Carla Schwartz. Thanks, Carla. Thank you, Tim. Take care and have a great afternoon, yeah, morning, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you too. <laughs> right. Bye-bye. Okay, that was uh, Carla Schwartz, of course, and she, Carla's CB99 videos on um, YouTube. Let's see, let's see what Vicky Miko had. Um, so Vicky has, again, Haiga for us, or, or something similar with art and, let's see, yeah, with art and poetry. So I'll put this up and just read it for Vicky really quick. Here it is. This is the world, and it comes with this beautiful um, art piece of bee in a in a honeycomb. We have some flowers, and we have the wide open blue sky in the middle. And the poem is right here. This is the world. So your circles closed and crystalline, and there's no fear of death or pain, where every cause you've cast or honed has peaked and toned and honeyed and combed. Full-fledged and bled and self-contained, you're ready to begin again. And so we have the spring water, summer wind, fall fire, winter land, and all in this poem here. And beautiful artwork, as always. Thanks so much, Vicky, for sharing that. Let me see um, if there's anything else I should probably share. Oh, here's Carlton Johnson. Yeah, Carlton does have a poem. Okay, so let me... Um, Put this into a word deck. It's Broken Sky from Carlton Johnson. Let's see what he did for the prop this week. Uh, here we go. Broken Sky. And that's, I think the unknown person is Carlton. So um, hopefully we have that set up. But here it is. Broken Sky from Carlton Johnson. Drop that down. Broken Sky. And there's an epigram. Uh, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those that look on and do nothing. And that's Albert Einstein's quote. Part one, Earth. The ground broke before you entered the stage and took the part. Darker black, the ground that night chased through Kew Gardens. A cold, whitening gray shadows the truth. All those listened with stone ears and curious blind eyes. Cries found no soul to wash away the bitter cobbles bedded into the lung and gullet like a dove. Water. The blade pain's laugh drawn by shake and shadow till the glint finding her entered in a thief of life. The screams that fell to dozens of turned backs returned to sleep or pray perhaps at 3.15 a.m. Fire. Her blood-red fiat parked at the L-I-R-R parking lot is still. Before her life left, he charged $49 for his pleasure. Her dignity lost again. The marvel, the marvel, a single soft dull light sconces the floors, illuminates the, fall, the failing flames grasping for air. 
for one more. Air. 4.15 a.m. Breath left body last in the arms of a single neighbor. A dozen or so upstanding thought a lover's quarrel only after when disaster deals death held hands with apathy. The air rose like vagrant spirits through flues and chimneys as dried eyes cry wish, did wish that they had done more. And that was uh, Carlton Johnson's poem for the prompt this week, Broken Sky. And um, I think I want to do one more and then we'll... um, Let's see. Yeah, so Sharon Ferrante is a a frequent um, participant in these, but she can't make it. So here is uh, me reading hers. What happens in the air? And this is Sharon Ferrante. What happens in the air? A lazy moon tonight, unable to shake off its foggy ring. But still she watches a silly witch forcing dead leaves into the air, hoping they come to life again, capturing a headwind, riding with a flighty Gemini. Sometimes what happens in the air brings you right back to the earth. Excellent little poem there. That was Sharon Ferrente. And then I think there's one more, too. Let me let me make sure, um, just so we get to everybody, because I think this will be everybody who sent them in, actually. Um, this is Terry Offner. And um, let's see. I want to make sure I get to, let me look, look, look. Okay. Let's do this one, too, and then we'll, well, then we'll wrap up the show. This is... Um, Terry Offner, Dream of Water and Fire, a glossa, or glossa. I'm not sure how to say that. Here that is. Dream of Water and Fire, glossa. After lines from Half-Finished Heaven by Thomas Stromer, translated by Robert Bly. And a glossa is the last line, which you'll see italicized here, of each stanza is from another poem's, um, or poet's work, another poem. So um, you can... So it's sort of a way to pull new poems out of old poems, I guess, is the glossiform. Dream of water and fire. The water table is high here. We sink slightly into earth when we walk into the open. As with Peter when he steps on to the sea, all eyes are upon his bare feet, each sinking slightly like a kiss. The give and take, the ache for more, certainty, doubt, the trembling wave, darkness underfoot. We swagger with too much knowing, the will for sure. Every person is a half-open door. In the city, the tempstress asks for the prophet's head. Let him watch as I dance if he still can. The trance, tinging bells on bare ankles and wrists, all eyes upon her swaying hips, the promise of a toe tracing a labyrinth on the marble floor. It's too late. I follow, stumble, succumb. One day that veil will part. Those eyes, they're not just for seeing. This is the way in, the way lovers come, leading to a room for everyone. The dream at halfway is there is there time to turn back, sabotage spring, dusk. She waits by the lake. The horizon is great as a gravy of pink light and dust, as if nature has a face, eyes and cheeks, a blush. She and I will lie down here, her body will pay again and again. I'll pray once with my lust, the endless field under us. What water is this? Does it rise, or did it fall overnight? Am I living in it, like a second air gasping, a flood I missed, and the light, 
What lamp or fire gives it? It warms the body, but it hurts the eyes. Hard to sleep. My thoughts are like animals. They come in twos, one part desire, another surrender. So hard to tell. Is this shore or is it sea? Water glitters between the trees. The dream, a pole saw through seasoned lumber. The chisel must be sharp to shape a tenon. Cut the mortise. I wonder if Jesus left furniture, a stool for washing feet. Wood dust is everywhere. It's with us from birth. Someone is sweeping the floor, tossing mistakes into the furnace. Good for heat, at least. Something is rising. I'm a boat. I, took o I look over the edge, water or hearth. The lake is a window into the earth. Wonderful poem. That was a dream of water and fire, a glossa after uh, Half Finished Heaven by Thomas Transtromer, translated by Robert Bly. And uh, the poet, of course, was um, Terry Offner. So thanks so much for sharing that, Terry. Glad I could read that um, and pass it along to everybody watching the show. I think that is it for today. We're, we're nine minutes over the time limit. Uh, but thanks so much, everybody, for participating and for, for asking great questions of um, Alicia and for sharing wonderful poems, as you always do. Um, next week's prompt is going to be here. Homophones are pairs of words which are pronounced the same way, but have different meanings, such as ball and ball. You know, B-A-L-L -B and B-A-W-L. Write a poem that contains at least one pair of homophones. So let's write a poem that contains at least one pair of homophones. And if you want to go overboard and make it very homophonic, then uh, feel free to do so. And that is your prompt for next week. And as I mentioned, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Anthony Tao at the regular time, 9 p.m. Eastern, March 9th on Tuesday. Um, Anthony was the author. Just a great... Um, great bunch of great poems i'm really impressed with his work um he doesn't have any books out but he also does music and he has several albums with uh leanne halton uh for this poetry times music band um, out of beijing his most recent album is last tribe on earth uh, he also is is a really big part of the poetry scene in beijing so we're going to talk about that and, and what's going on in in poetry in china it should be a really fascinating discussion that is Rattlecast number 83 with Anthony Tao, Tuesday, March 9th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great day. Thanks again, as always, for joining us. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.